Ghana Muna, Ghana Yurta. I'd like to just begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we are on today and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and also to pay my respects to any First Nations folk here today. Uh, this land was never ceded. Before we go uh, much further, I'd also like to flag with all of you that this, the audio for this session is being recorded by the ABC, by my colleague, Jack Connell over there. He's waving. Thank you so much, Jack. Um, my name is Smriti Daniel, and today we are in conversation with Lucia Osborne Crowley, a journalist and the author of the memoir, I Choose Elena, and more recently, My Body Keeps Your Secrets. I haven't been able to stop thinking about Lucia's books <laughs> since I read them, and I suspect they have that effect on many people. Um, there's a raw courage and a vulnerability there, um, and she pairs this with extensive research, um, exploring how the body holds trauma and remembers shame, even when the conscious mind cannot bear to look. I'll admit that I found these books really hard to read. I cried sometimes. Um, but they also left me with hope, <laughs> um, and they moved me deeply. And that's why I'm so looking forward to talking to all of you today about the book. And Lucia, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here, and thank you for having me. And thank you all for being here at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> I know. I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm amazed that I'm awake at 9.30 in the morning. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you so much for those beautiful words about the book. Oh, um, Lucia, I actually wanted to start. I forgot to do this earlier, but I wanted to start by wishing you a belated happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so you, you, turned, you, you turned 30. I last turned 30 week. last week, yes, which That's is terrifying. So I'm still in the process of having that particular crisis. Um, so thanks for being here for that as well. <laughs> uh, that, that's a kind of an important year for some people. Does it feel like that for you? It does. I mean, it feels... It's a very strange one. Mm -hmm. I expected to have more of an existential crisis about turning 30 than I did. Um, and when I, I... I've been thinking... I've been worrying about turning 30 since I was about 18... Uh, because that's just how my mind works. But I'm much, I'm much more relaxed about it than I thought I would be, um, which is because I've had a lot of therapy in the last 10 years um, and read a lot of really good books. And so by the time I actually got here, I was um, feeling pretty calm about it, surprisingly. Oh, I, I love that. I feel like that's what we should tell all young people. Oh, yeah. Have a lot of therapy, read a lot read of Read a books. lot of books, yeah. Um, so, Lucia, actually, I'd like to just kind of dive in because I have so many questions for you. And... My first question is really about both books. And this, you know, your relationship to your body is, is, is central to these books. And I wanted to go way back to really talk about you as a very young, very serious gymnast. Mm -hmm. um, you had been for world championships and you had performed at that standard. And what was your relationship to your body at that time? Um, you know, this is such an interesting question because uh, if you'd asked me when I was a bit younger, um, you know, I'd, I've always dreamed of writing a book, uh, but this is the, you know, the body and c connecting to the body is definitely the last thing I ever would have expected to write a book about uh, because when I was young, I was so determined to kind of not think about my relationship to my body too much um, because as a very young person, you know, starting when I was three, um, 
I was a gymnast, I was an athlete. It was kind of v- a, the focal point of my identity, really. Uh, it's what I did with most of my time. Um, and what they teach you as a kind of serious athlete is to just not think about it too much. Everything is muscle memory. Uh, you get taught how to do your tricks and they're very, very dangerous and, and you can't let your mind get in the way. So my mind and my body were very, very separate. Um, and that is is what I was taught because as soon as you let you, yourself think about it too much, sometimes you, you, know, you get scared and um, you find that you can't do things. Um, so I just had this... Um, incredibly I had this relationship with my body where I kind of trusted it to do what it needed to do Um, I knew that it was good at what it needed to do and that was all that mattered to me about it you know it was powerful um, it was strong it was flexible it was the things that I needed it to be in order to kind of live this dream that I had of of being a gymnast Um, And outside of that, I didn't think about it, Hmm. Um, which was the perfect relationship to have as a teenage girl because it kind of sheltered me from a lot of the really awful and complicated ways that teenage girls are taught to think about their bodies. So there was a time when I was really focused on being an athlete that I was really shielded from that. Um, And I didn't know how lucky that was at the time. Um, because I just really appreciated my body. I just thought it was great. I thought it was good at doing what it needed to do. Um, And it wasn't any more complicated than that. And then um, my gymnastics career ended very suddenly because I was injured. Um, And so it was kind of this really strange... You know, now I think this is really interesting to analyse. It was this kind of almost literal overnight shift where I was an athlete one day and then the next day I had a a sports doctor telling me, you'll be lucky if you ever go for a run again, you know, this is over. Um, And then my world kind of filled up with all the messaging that teenage girls get um, about their body and about shame, Um, all these things that I kind of had a barrier from before that moment. Um, So it was really interesting to experience that shift and all of a sudden I was... I was in the same world as my friends at school um, with that kind of really negative messaging um, because I didn't have a separate world anymore to live in. Um, so, you know, it's almost, you know, it's a, it's, it's a unique kind of way to analyse those two things because it happened to me so quickly and I had to get used to kind of then thinking, oh, you know, what does my body look like to other people? who aren't, you know, the judges at the World Championships or whatever. Um, what does it look like to, to people at school? Um, how do I change it? You know, how do I change it aesthetically? What should I do with my hair? You know, all of these things uh, that as an athlete you don't think about. So it's, you know, I feel that I was, I was really lucky um, in having to have those years when I just appreciated my body so much for what it could do rather than what it looked like. Um, and then having that change so suddenly was a really interesting experience. And then your relationship to your body changed again when you were raped. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, you write about shame being transmitted Mm -hmm. at that moment, and what did that mean for you? Yeah, so I love this idea of shame transmission. I think it's... um, uh, I didn't come up with it. It's something that Mira Atkinson wrote um, in her book Traumata, which is absolutely brilliant 
and she talks about shame being transmitted, and I think that's the perfect verb, uh, because shame is so often, and, and this is how Mira writes about it, um, it, is, it is handed to a person by someone who doesn't want to carry it themselves. So if we're talking about sexual violence, um, you know, and sexual violence and shame have such a close relationship to one another. Uh, and perpetrators of this kind of violence um, very rarely feel ashamed um, or very rarely feel shame about what they've done to another person. Um, and what that does, and that the more I research shame and, and how it works in terms of the neuroscience of shame, uh, you know, a person kind of gives it to you by, by doing something terrible to you, uh, especially as a young person, as a teenager or as a child, because it's very hard for a young brain to think to themselves, this adult um, has done something very bad. Um, it's hard to think that, that adults are bad, so instead you think, I am bad, you know, and I have done something to deserve this. Um, and that's how shame is transmitted, uh, by someone committing, you know, a shameless act that you as a young person take on um, and then believe that, that you deserved somehow. And you combine that with the world that we live in, um, which shames victims of sexual violence every day, all the time, you know, if, you know, when I think back about what I was watching on TV, what I was hearing on the radio, what even what I was taught in um, at school, you know, when, when girls would be abducted in where, when, I, when I went to high school, I went to a mixed high school, and when girls would be abducted, the boys would be sent out to have an extra half day of sport. They'd just go and play football, and the girls would be sat down and told not to wear short skirts when walking home or, you know, to be really aware. And so, you know, there's so much messaging that, that tells girls that uh, you are to blame in some way. And it's not necessarily intentional, you know, these things can be very, very well-intentioned, but they do have this kind of underlying quality to them, which is, which is that, uh, you know, you deserve this somehow when, when these things happen to you. So when I was assaulted, there was a, there's a combination of kind of an interpersonal transmission of shame, this person making me feel like you know, I was worthless and I had done something bad in order to attract violence. And then you continue living in, in the world and you hear that same message again and again and again in movies and everywhere that, you know, victims of sexual violence in particular um, are to blame somehow. So that, again, you know, was an almost overnight shift in the way I felt about my body and the way I felt about myself. Um, because all of, all of a sudden I, I was kind of infused with this sense that there was something bad about me. You know, there was something about me that, that attracts bad things or there's something about me that attracts violence. Um, and that, you know, this is the other really interesting thing about shame um, is that it's a very physical emotion, so uh, it's not cognitive um, it it's, happens in the amygdala and it, and it happens in the body. And so you can't necessarily think your way out of it. You know, you don't know that this is what you're thinking all the time. And so it's very easy if, if, no one, if the world doesn't correct you, you know, if the messaging you're getting is reinforcing this idea that you should be ashamed or that, that you are bad in some way, then it can, the infusion can become so complete that it becomes part of your personality because it's not cognitive, and then you can kind of go about the world thinking 
um, that you just happen to be someone who feels very bad about themselves um, or who feels a lot of shame all the time. And you start to think that that's innate somehow rather than that that was caused by something that someone else chose to do to you rather than something you chose or something you were born with. Um, and so I think, you know, shame behaves in really interesting ways um, in that respect. And so, yeah, as you said, you know, I had another very stark shift in the way I felt about myself when I was assaulted, as, as all people do, but we're not really allowed to talk about that. So I just started to think that as I was growing up, I was just becoming a more fearful person. You know, I just started to think that I was constitutionally afraid or constitutionally weak or something. Um, and none of that was true, you know. Um, it was just uh, a symptom of something that someone else had chosen to do. One of the things that you write about is you say that you want to keep looking at the woman after the bad thing has happened, um, you know, after the secret has been locked away. Mm -hmm. And in I Choose Elena, the woman you're looking at is yourself. But when it comes to my body keeps your secrets, you, you threw open that door, you had that conversation with so many other women and with non-binary folk. And I was curious what you learned across this process and what kind of patterns you saw that were shared among all these people. Yeah, so I was really conscious, you know, I'm trained as a journalist and one of the things, you know, especially 10 years ago, if you're kind of learning to be a journalist, one of the things they tell you is to never make the story about yourself, <laughs> which is exactly what I did. Um, and so I never imagined in a million years that I would write a book about myself. Um, and so, you know, and... and I think I choose Eleanor had to be that in some ways because it was it was my way in it was the only way in I had to these kind of bigger concepts. But when I finished it, um, you know, it struck me that uh, I I really wanted to kind of go both deeper and wider into these concepts um, because the story of I choose Eleanor and and that is you know my own experience is actually. Um, not very common. So, you know, I was assaulted by a stranger um, in the night. Uh, it's the kind of monster myth uh, idea. And what we know statistically uh, is that um, that's quite an un uncommon experience. Most people are um, assaulted or shamed by people they know, people they trust, people who are supposed to protect them. Um, and those dynamics are much, much... Uh, they're, they're just... They're very different to what my story is. And... Um, you know, I felt that I really wanted to explore these concepts um, in relation to lots of different stories so that it, it wasn't as though I was saying, you know, this applies to this very specific and quite stark experience. You know, these concepts, shame and trauma and how trauma affects the body, um, they apply to so many different experiences um, and it's all on a continuum. And also the more I read, the more I realised as well that that trauma, we think about trauma um, because we're taught to think about trauma in the context of war. So we think about it as being one event. Um, and, you know, that was kind of what I choose Eleanor framed it as as well because um, that was what it was like for me. But, but trauma can also be a series of events or a series of small amounts of shame or, or neglect over a long period of time. It can be lots of different things. So I wanted to write a book that reflected that. I also, um, I heard from so many people 
after I wrote I Choose Eleanor, um, who, who wanted to share um, that it felt real to them, but felt that they had to qualify that by saying, what happened to me isn't as bad as what happened to you. Um, and so I really wanted to communicate that that's not the case, you know, that it's not, there is no objective kind of scale of things being, some things being worse than others. Trauma affects us all in the same ways and, and trauma can arise out of many, many, many different experiences. So I wanted to write something that was more inclusive, mm. um, that, you know, didn't, didn't leave people feeling like they had to qu qualify their experience in that way. And... Um, because, you know, it always made me sad when I read that, that people felt like they had to say to me, um, you know, this wasn't as bad. Uh, because the thing is that it impacts us all the same. Um, and so I, I wanted to reach out to lots of different people who have had lots of different experiences and talk to them and, and try and, and bring those stories together uh, and weave these concepts through those stories. And... Interestingly, in terms of what you asked about patterns, you know, it is amazing how, how much all of... So I interviewed more than 100 people um, and the amount that they have in common in terms of um, the feelings that they were left with, the physical sensations that they were left with, is, is, was beyond what I had imagined. So I believed, you know, that that these concepts hold true and that they would be shared among many, many, many different stories. But I did not think it would be... I didn't think the patterns would be as strong as they were. And I had 100 people who will n probably never meet each other. They're mostly anonymized. They could be standing in the same room and not know it. But they're also, you know, in Ireland and the north of England and in Australia and, you know, in lots of different parts of the world. And they will probably never cross paths they express things to me sometimes in the same words, mm. you know, um, and they had these experiences of, of kind of the impacts of trauma that were so similar to one another. Um, and it was really remarkable to me that they could be using the same phrases, the same adjectives, you know, the same, the same feelings, um, even though they've, you know, they've never met each other. And I found that really remarkable, that they had so much in common um, and that I was able to kind of... What I really wanted is to kind of create a community between these people, um, even though... It, without them needing to share their stories publicly. So they're anonymised, but in the book they are together, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So it's almost... I wanted, them, I wanted it to feel as though in the book they could be in the same room. Um, mm -hmm even though in the world um, that requires you to kind of speak really openly about terrible things that have happened to you. And so I wanted to create a way to, to be able to create that community without the pressure yeah. of, of disclosure um, and of identifying yourself. And so, you know, these patterns, the way that people with, with unbelievably different stories, you know, they were talking about completely different experiences, but they were left with the same feelings. And... I mean, the thing that's interesting is that a lot of these kind of ephemeral experiences, these things that, you know, happened when they were young or, at, you know, way back in the past, have this tangible and continuing effect over their lives. And so you also see, you know, you also see um, chronic eating disorders. Mm -hmm. You see disease um, actually manifest, very painful disease. Yep. Um, and 
you also see these things go untreated mm -hmm. and, you know, the impact of that. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And this is, um, this was a really interesting learning moment for me with this book um, is kind of thinking about the patterns over a life um, in terms of the way trauma impacts the body, not just in the kind of physical dimension. So things like chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, all of these things have been linked to either chronic stress or post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, but also things that are um, even more complicated than that relationship, which are th things like chronic eating disorders, uh, things like substance abuse, um, which, you know, there's so much research out there about the connection between shame and trauma and those things because um, the psychological impact of trauma is um, that we have these memories or these experiences that feel to us to be unbearable. Um, and the brain, you know, it, it's doing its best to protect us and it, it doesn't want to remember those experiences. And so we go out in the world and we find ways to numb those experiences. And, um, you know, that's, that's the brain's best response to this situation. Um, and I read this... Uh, so Gabor Mate is someone who works with um, patients who have chronic eating disorders and substance abuse problems, and he talks about numbing and how many ways there are that we do this, that we try and avoid memories of things when people have done terrible things to us. Um, and... It just occurred to me that these things, you know, these are two good examples, eating disorders and substance abuse, are things that we are then again shamed for. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a shame double whammy. You know, like you have the first thing and then the way you cope with it um, is some form of numbing, which is a very normal response. Um, but we, we stigmatise those responses as well. So then people who have those responses, people who rely on substances or people who have eating disorders, um, and there are so many examples of this in the book, they try and get help and they are sent home because those, those responses to shame and trauma, we, don't, we are very scared to see them for what they are, which is that you know, their responses to these terrible things in society that we don't want to look at. So instead we blame the individual um, and we say, you know, go home and pull your socks up and, and you know, get yourself together. Um, so it means that, you know, these people, I think, were failed by society and then failed again when they tried to go to doctors and said, you know, um, I have a problem with eating or, you know, I have bulimia. And doctors would say, oh, well, you're a teenage girl, you know, so... No surprises there. People would go to their teachers and be ignored by their teachers, you know. Um, and it's the same with um, addiction, uh, is people really stigmatise it rather than kind of asking someone what they need um, and perhaps, you know, asking someone, uh, you know, did something bad happen to you? Um, because that's the way you kind of heal and, and treat those things. And so it was interesting speaking to all these people who, who had kind of lived this pattern and then being able to read someone like Gabor Mate or Bessel van der Kolk and, and for them to say, I know this from a research perspective, that this is what happens. This is how we cope with these things. And the more we stigmatise those responses, um, the more we're kind of leaving victims and traumatised people out in the cold to, to try and deal with something that they don't have the tools to deal with on their own. And Lucia, when you were in the, in the churn of this, when you were you know, st struggling, really struggling to, to even understand what was happening to you. 
Um, you know, anyone who's read the book is going to have this sense that Lucia is, is kind of thrown this lifeline by Elena Ferrante and <laughs> by Leslie Jameson and Adrian Rich and, uh, you know, Mira Atkinson. Like, mm. there's this real sense, like, she quotes extensively um, from these writers in her book, and there's such a sense of connection to these writers. And I wanted to ask you what you saw, you know, that they were, they were doing that was really useful to you in that moment and that resonated with you in this way. Yeah, so I think um, this is the thing I really love about writing and reading, and it, and it really was a lifeline for me, because when you... So, you know, any of these writers, Leslie Jameson, for example, her essay collection, The Empathy Exams, um, it's, it's narrative nonfiction and it's quite personal, and you can sit and read it, and when you kind of commune with literature in that way... Um, it's a really safe space because no one's expecting anything from you. You can read and absorb things without uh, anyone demanding that you respond. Um, and I think we don't... There's, there's very few spaces like that in the world, you know. Um, even in therapy, you, you still have to be engaging with someone. Um, and I'm a big introvert. And, you know, processing things happens, you know, in a very introverted way for me. And books are perfect for that because you can be on your own, in your own space, feeling safe, and be able to read something that's confronting um, and not have to respond to it straight away. And, you know, a book, can, you know, you can sit there with it for hours and hours and hours. Um, and that process can be very, very healing, I think, because you can have a number of realisations, some of which are very uncomfortable, um, but you're able to do it, you know, in this very safe environment. And so... I just really wanted to kind of communicate that because I think it's um, it's a really useful tool, um, and you know people have different ways to kind of try and and deal with the emotions that come up from trauma. You know, I have a friend who um, just needs to be in a body of water. You know, she's a swimmer and she'll sit in the bath or she'll just go and sit in water, and that's how she can kind of sit through really toxic emotions. Um, and for me, reading is that thing. Um, because I think it has that really special quality uh, to it. And so I really wanted that to be in both books, just just in case that works for other people too, you know, um, so that people could think, if I'm really struggling with this emotion, one option would be to pick up a book that I really love. Um, and sometimes you only need to read, you know, like the third the third book in the Neapolitan series. It's my, fir- my favourite one in that series. And... I pick it up and sometimes I only need to read two paragraphs and I feel better, you know, and I feel able to kind of re-regulate myself. And it's about, it's about the autonomic nervous system and it's about kind of being able to regulate your emotions. And I find that other people's writing does that for me. Uh, and then, you know, on another level, I also... Um, I just think it's really important to kind of recognise... Uh, in this kind of writing, the the people who have influenced you and and helped you. Um, Because writing is so important to me and, and, you know, I don't think I would be the same person if I didn't read Ferrante or if I didn't read Leslie Jameson. Um, And I want to make that explicit. You know, I really wanted to put that in there um, and make it, you know, put it front and centre to kind of, yeah, be really forthright about the fact that, you know, this is a joint effort. You know, it's a community and it, it, it's, yeah. it's a community of readers and other writers and we're all kind of thinking about the same things, um, but we're doing it um, sitting alone, reading books, and I think, you know, that's a really nice thing. 
I feel like we're a community of readers and writers <laughs> right here as yes. well. Um, for anyone just joining us, we're at the Adelaide Writers Week with Lucia Osborne Crowley, the author of I Choose Elena and My Body Keeps Your Secrets. Um, Lucia, I would actually like to talk about another aspect of your career that really fascinates me. Um, as a journalist, you've been covering the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, and you've said that this is the most important trial of the Me Too era so far, you know, in your opinion, and why is that? So I think this trial is, is really interesting and significant for a couple of reasons. I mean, we've had the Harvey Weinstein trial and we've had a couple of moments where the justice system tries to reckon with this kind of abuse and with sexual violence. But the Ghislaine Maxwell trial um, has interested me for a while and I, and I chose to cover it, um, you know, when she was first indicted about 18 months ago, I thought to myself this is going to be really important. And that is because um, there are more, there are a lot of complex dynamics at play in this story. Um, so, you know, it's very easy with this story, I think, to get caught up in the sensationalism of it, um, you know, because there's lots of money involved and Prince Andrew's involved and, you know, all Bill Gates is involved, you know. But what's important to me is, is the fact that, you know, there, there are a number of girls um, who were groomed by Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, and grooming is something that uh, we don't... We, we haven't got to grips with yet, I don't think, um, as a society. And I think it needs to be the next step. So the idea of being hurt by someone you trust um, and, and hurt by someone you love uh, is really complicated, and the law is not very good at dealing with that. Um, and, you know, that's what is at play in this trial. We have girls who, when they were 13, 14, 15 years old, um, met adults who promised that they could trust them and who promised that they could help them um, and then, you know, turned that into an abusive... These adults turned that into an abusive situation. And that kind of predatory behaviour... Um, the criminal justice system is very bad at, uh, which, you know, we saw, I think, in this, in this trial. Um, and so there's that aspect to it. Uh, and there's also a, co a coercive control aspect to it that I think is really important for the justice system to reckon with. So what we heard day in, day out of this trial was the defence getting up and saying, oh, well, to these, to these women... Um, who were girls at the time, saying, well, actually, you could have left at any time. You, you, you know, no-one was holding a gun to your head. You could have walked away. Um, and, you know, this, the concept of, of coercive control and, and being in a relationship where you are being controlled without physical, you know, without being physically restrained, it's remarkable to me that, that, that we're still quite behind on that. Um, and the way that these women were, were impugned uh, for kind of not not leaving um, when a they they'd been groomed for years and years b they were 13 14 15 years old and c they were in abusive relationships with adults who made them feel that they couldn't leave so it struck me that you know having a a trial that would really have to grapple with those things um, would be a really important one to cover 
because I, I suspected, and, and this is what happened, it would show where the cracks are, you know. It would show where, where the issues are that we really don't understand and certainly that the legal system hasn't worked out a way to deal with. And so instead of dealing with them properly, we had five weeks of um, the four victims who testified being really, you know, shamed and re-traumatised again yeah. and again and again. Um, so I think it's really important to pay attention uh, to this story and to this trial um, because these women have fought tooth and nail to have this story believed and, and to have it understood and I, and I think we're not there yet, you know. Um, so going back to what we were saying before, all four of these women struggled with substance abuse um, both when they were uh, involved with Jeffrey Epstein and afterwards. Uh, and again, every day, you know, they, the defence got up and said well, you know, you have struggled with opioid addiction, so we can't trust you. You know, that was literally said to them. We can't trust you, right? Because, you know, you, you're, you've been addicted to painkillers. Um, and they had to try and explain the connection between abuse and, and substance abuse. Um, and the prosecution didn't give us a witness to explain that for them. Um, there was a lot, they, you know, a lot that should have been explained that through expert witnesses that wasn't. So these women had to try and explain it to the jury themselves, which they shouldn't have to do, especially not while they're being attacked in this, you know, really awful way about things that they've struggled with in the past. So all these things that, that came up in My Body Keeps Your Secrets were really big parts of this trial. Um, and to have a kind of public reckoning with those issues, those really complex issues, um, I thought it would be a useful way to kind of, again, go deeper and, and try and expose wh where the gaps in knowledge still are and then how we can make that process easier for, for victims who, who testify in the future in, in these kinds of abusive situations that involve grooming, that involve coercive control. Um, it's kind of interesting. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I love that that resonates because it's such a complex, ambiguous space that, as you say, we haven't paid enough attention to. Um, but, you know, speaking of witnesses, uh, one of the witnesses was Elizabeth Loftus. And mm -hmm. I, I really, I mean, I was fascinated by that piece you wrote. And I, I, and I wanted to ask you what, you know, Bugs Bunny and rectal enemas <laughs> had to do with traumatic memory and mm. why do you why do you find Loftus so problematic? So um, for those who don't know Elizabeth Loftus is um, a memory expert uh, she's a psychologist and she's spent the last 30 years um, researching what she calls false memory so um, this idea that kind of first emerged um, when uh, Freud started talking about repressed memories but but has really kind of morphed into a very different concept, especially when Elizabeth Loftus presents it. So what she argues is that uh, a victim can have a, a memory of ongoing abuse that is completely implanted. So something that uh, has never happened, but she argues uh, is implanted by um, what she calls post-event information. So um, movies, TV, that kind of thing, can convince you that you have a memory that you don't have. Um, and she has become a career defence witness for um, 
people who are accused of sexual violence. So um, she testified for Harvey Weinstein, she testified for Bill Cosby, she testified for R. Kelly, um, she testified for Michael Jackson. Uh, and basically what she does and, and what she now is paid to do, so she now you know, doesn't conduct very much research, what she does with, with her career is get up and say, um, you know, these victims have memories that are essentially made up. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's problematic for a number of reasons. So there is, she, she presents research, uh, which is, you know, absolutely real, and, and talks about kind of memories that are slightly incorrect. So she does this process of attempting to implant memories. So that her most famous one is she gets a group of people, and there are only 24 participants in this study, so, you know, it wasn't a particularly um, wide study, but she gets these 24 adults and she says to them, um, and this, this is a lie, but she says to them, I've just spoken to your parents and they've written down three memories from your childhood. And she, she gives those three memories to the participants. And in a certain... So there's one of those memories on there that's not true. So they get the parents to write down two true memories and one that's not true. And the one that's not true is that they once got lost in a shopping centre. And so she gives them this, and, and a certain number of participants will say that the getting lost in the shopping centre memory is real. So she uses this to prove um, that you can come up with fake memories. Um, but, and then she does this other one with, with Bugs Bunny, which um, ended up becoming a kind of focal point in the trial, and the, the prosecution did a great job with this. She has another one where she says the same thing, your parents have written down three memories. But in this case, the false memory was meeting Bugs Bunny at Disney World. So some percentage of the participants, and it, it wasn't all of them, it was often kind of 25% of people would say, yes, I met Bugs Bunny at Disney World. And then she turns around and the big plot twist is that Bugs Bunny is a Warner Brothers character, so you would never meet him at Disney World. And when she said that on the stand, I was like, I mean, I didn't even know that. You know, it's like this huge, like, oh, my God, big reveal. They, of course they didn't meet both Bunny at Disneyland because he's Warner Brothers. So she, again, she's trying to say these people have attested to a memory that, is, that couldn't have happened. Um, and the thing that is problematic about that uh, is that both of those memories are quite benign. So meeting Buzz, Bugs Bunny at Disneyland is, uh, you know, the memory was that they met him for about five seconds um, and not even that they got a picture with him or anything. So they're very benign memories um, and also they've been given information by their parents. So she's saying to them, your parents have this memory. So it is quite an aggressive implanting of the memory um, and, you know you can see why people would think, oh, well, if my parents have that memory, then it's probably true. That's very different from inventing five years of sexual abuse at the hands of Jeffrey Epstein. You know, those two things are not equivalent. Um, so the research is not proving what she says it's proving. Um, firstly, because uh, this, there's this kind of aggressive implanting, which... You know, there's no suggestion that these girls' parents came to them and said, did you know that for five years you were involved in this abusive relationship with Jeffrey Epstein? You know, what she was trying to say is that it, the memory had been implanted just kind of naturally somehow. They just all came up with this same story. 
Um, and that's a real stretch. And in terms, in terms of the law, you know, we, we introduce expert evidence to kind of testify about, about science. And, and this is not that. You know, the, the, there's, the, there's a false equivalence between what the research shows and what she is saying about these victims. And she does go further than an expert witness is supposed to. And, and she says things like, yes, this victim could have, um, in fact, invented this memory. And the other thing is this idea of benign and traumatic memories. You know, we know um, that traumatic memories are, behave and are retrieved very, very differently to benign childhood memories like meeting Bugs Bunny. Um, they are stored in a very different way. Uh, they're not processed um, properly. They're not processed cognitively. So um, the equivalence between meeting Bugs Bunny and, you know, being being 13 and being assaulted by um, a middle-aged man uh, is really, you, you know, I, 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 you know it's, it's hard to see how that kind of equivalence is allowed to be made um, in the justice system. And so uh, the prosecution's closing argument was very clever. They really focused on this because Elizabeth Loftus was, was the defence's star witness. You know, they knew that if they could get the jury to believe... Um, that the, these women came up with these memories, you know, out of nowhere. Um, then that's kind of that's the ball game. They they they're done. Um, but the the prosecution got up and said, "This is not a case about Bugs Bunny," and they said it five times in their closing arguments. They said, "You know, don't don't be fooled. We're not talking about Bugs Bunny. We are talking about memories." You know, with a traumatic memory, we know that the details can get very confused because of the way your brain can't process memories cognitively and narratively. But the core of the memory, the sounds, the smells, certain images, um, are implanted, you know, um, as in, I'm using, that's confusing, I'm using the same word that she uses. I mean that they are kind of seared onto the brain. Um, and you can't make those memories up. Um, and there is no evidence to suggest that you can. So what the prosecution did was they stood up and said, you know, these women have come here and talked to you about the worst things that have ever happened to them. They did not tell you about meeting Bugs Bunny. They are talking about memory, things that they will never, ever forget and that they will never be confused about. You know, maybe... It, like, the, the core of a traumatic memory is very, very strong. Um, and so they did a really good job of... Um, of kind of showing that those two things weren't equivalent. And so, um, you know, Maxwell was convicted on, on five of the six counts that she was charged with. So, you know, we know that the jury didn't, didn't uh, believe in this theory of false memory, but other juries have. Mm -hmm. and, and she will continue to be kind of used for this purpose. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a real problem, um, both because she's not acting... So she has a book called uh, Witness for the Defence and it's all about, you know, how, um, how many sexual violence trials she's testified at in order to prove that, that victims have false memories. And the prosecution got up one day and said, oh, this is your book, it's called Witness for the Defence. And then they said, have you ever written a book called Impartial Witness? <laughs> and she was like, you got me there. <laughs> nope. Uh, you know, so one of the problems is that, you know, it's a confusion of the role of, that expert witnesses are supposed to play and you know the other is that it's not very scientific and because of those two things someone is being allowed to testify who is saying something that is just it has a very strong victim blaming quality to it 
Lucia, I'm going to throw open the floor to the audience, but I just have one final question for you. And it's really, I mean, just listening to you speak, I have gratitude, actually, because I think that it takes more women speaking out, and I think it takes us being in these spaces, even. Mm. Sometimes not even just speaking out, but just being in these spaces. Yep. That's what it takes to change. And, you know, there's this section... In, in your book uh, where you talk to your younger self mm -hmm. and you acknowledge that you cannot undo the harm that she's experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you, you know, but you say you want to get to know her mm. and you ask her what she would like to create. Mm. And, mm. and so my question to you, 30-year-old Lucia, <laughs> with two books under your belt, is in this next decade even, what would you like to create? Um, that's such a nice question. Thank you. Um, and thank you for bringing up that part of the book. Um, I found that part very difficult to write, but I'm glad that it's in there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think um, what I really want to do um, is just to kind of to keep going, you know, to keep writing about these kinds of things, um, to keep creating work that tries to look squarely at things that are uncomfortable because I really believe um, that that's where kind of true empathy and connection live. And I think um, we are taught in a lot of ways to turn away from these things and, and, and that's what causes quite a lot of harm. Um, and so what I really want to do, you know, sometimes I want to turn away from these things and like watch Love is Blind uh, for the rest of my life, you know. Um, but what I, you know, what I want to do over the next 10 years is, is not do that and, and keep, keep writing about things that are difficult to write about and, you know, keep hoping uh, that that might be useful for someone. Thank you. Our lovely stage manager, Alira, is there at the back with a mic. If anyone has any questions for Lucia, please just stick up your hand. And Oh, and sorry, please come to the mic. <laughs> Would you mind uh, joining Alira there in the... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, it's a bit of a walk. At least we're all here in person and don't have to do the little thing on Zoom where you like virtually put your hand up. <laughs> yeah. This is better than and that. And everyone ignores you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was hoping just to use my voice from my seat and not stand up, but hey. Sorry. No, you don't need to apologise. Um, I want to... I've got actually a few questions for you, but I will start with one. It's about shame transmission. Mm -hmm. So you get a big yes from me on, on that. Understood, no questions asked. Um... I noticed in your book you don't mention a lot, like a couple of the people who speak to you write about their parents and their, their background. Uh, you haven't mentioned anything about your family, and I'm not asking for that necessarily now, but um, I'm interested in the concept of the shame transmission as it exists in families. So if you have... If there's mothers who somehow have had that shame transmitted down and there's so many ways for that to occur, not just... Um, it doesn't just take rape, or not just take rape, but rape or sexual abuse, but that shame comes down in so many other forms in a patriarchal society like ours. So it's very easy for that shame transmission to go down through to the daughters 
within the family. Can you, do you have any comments or thoughts that you can share about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Thank you. Um, and it is something that I'm very, very, very interested in um, from a kind of research and academic perspective. Um, and, you know, I come from an unbelievably uh, loving family uh, and my parents are great and they're here, so thank you to them. Oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, this is not something uh, that I've ever wanted to write about myself um, because, you know, these kinds of things don't play out, in, you know, in, in that way in my family. But certainly people I spoke to had had that experience um, and, and did not want it to be included in the book. Um, and, you know, I think this is interesting because uh, my editors in the UK, uh, when I was writing the book, did kind of say, oh, well, we need to push them on this because, you know, I need to know about their parents and I need to know about how they grew up. Uh, and I kind of said, you know, I'm not... I don't, I don't want that. Um, I don't want to ask them to share things they don't want to share. Um, so it is purposefully kind of excluded from that book. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting in itself that, that people aren't comfortable speaking about it. Um, so, you know, I think... That's why I think the question is important because there's something there, right? There's something perhaps that is that is more complicated, uh, and that we are less able to speak about when there are um, difficult dynamics going on inside families. And so this is something that came up a lot in the Maxwell trial, um, and you've reminded me of something I wanted to say actually. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> um, a lot of the women, um, all of them actually, spoke about how they were primed to be abused by Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell because they came from families where there were really toxic dynamics and or their parents were just very absent. So there was a lot of shame transmission going on between parents and daughters for these women. Um, and the prosecution did actually have an expert who got up and said... Um, young people are much more likely to be victims of grooming and coercive control if they have dynamics um, that come from their parents where, where they have already been shamed. Um, so it's something I'll be writing a lot about in, in the third book um, because it came up a lot in the trial uh, and I think it's really, really important uh, to kind of be able to... Whoa, um, ..be able to use those stories... Um, to explore those more complicated dynamics. So it's something I've been researching a bit recently. Um, and I do think, you know, it is kind of the next step, I think. It's, it's the next thing that needs to be explored. I noticed you were really keen to read the intergenerational work on trauma that one of the people you interviewed is doing. Yes. So I don't know if you've done that yet, but yeah, that all sounds like it's in, the same, in that ballpark. Yep. Thank yep. you so much. I think we have another question. Yeah. I'm no neuroscientist at all, but in my reading of the world I live in, we love to think of the brain, understandably, as a cognitive organ. I haven't read either of your books, but I will. So you. can you, is it possible for you to talk a little bit more about that amygdalic journey from the amygdala mm -hmm in terms of it being a non-cognitive process? 
Absolutely. Such a good question. Uh, and you're right. We really love to think about the brain as a cognitive organ. That's the perfect way to express that. Um, there is something very comforting in thinking about the brain as the site of cognition and cognition only. And I certainly always thought this. You know, I thought, you know, I can think my way out of anything. You know, I can... I can if, if I kind of dedicate my brain to thinking in a certain way, um, then I can overcome any emotion. But, um, you know, the, the cognitive part of the brain and the emotional part of the brain are completely separate. And what happens in trauma when you're having a, a, a traumatic response is that your um, prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for cognition, actually goes offline. Um, so you... It just kind of shuts down and you lose the, the capacity for cognition in the sense that we think about it in terms of logic and narrative and putting things together and understanding things. And your brain is being completely controlled by your fear response, which happens in the amygdala. Um, and when you're in that state, you are not capable of cognition, even if you convince yourself that you are. Uh, and this I find really, really interesting. So... I think the more that... And, and when I understood this, it was a really big aha moment for me to, to understand when I was being controlled by a fear response and therefore by my emotional brain rather than my logical brain, which I've always put so much store into. Um, because then there are kind of ways... There are strategies we can use to connect up, to kind of bring the frontal cortex back online. And, and when I learned those strategies, it, it was really useful for me to kind of work through traumatic responses or, or when I realised that I was responding to something in a fight-or-flight uh, state rather than in a cognitive state. And, in fact, so much of what our brain does every day is, is using the amygdala to interpret the world. And if you've had any kind of trauma in your life, um, you will have an overactive... Um, fight-or-flight response, which is when the amygdala takes over. And it's really useful when you start to understand what that looks and feels like um, and to understand that the brain does those two things in very different ways and that the cognitive part of the brain, while very important, uh, is definitely not all of it. Um, and sometimes we just don't have access to that part of our brain. Um, and that, again, you know, is... is comes from a useful place when the brain thinks it's under threat it turns on the fear response to get you out of danger you know think logical thinking is not what it wants to be doing if you're being chased by a tiger um so it you know the brain is doing what it what it thinks is right but when you're in fact at the adelaide festival and everything is fine uh it's really useful to have those strategies to try and reconnect the fear brain um, with the cognitive brain. So that's what I've really enjoyed learning about in terms of diving into the neuroscience. Um, and it's, I think it's really interesting for everyone to kind of think about that distinction. Um, we're down to our last five minutes, so maybe we take another two questions. Maybe? Sounds good. Yeah. Um, can Hi, so I've been following your trial of the Maxwell case on Instagram and Twitter a lot. And one of the more concerning things was about Jura 50 mm -hmm. and how having an assault survivor on a jury, at least from the Maxwell defence's perspective, put the whole case at jeopardy. Mm -hmm. I was wondering about how you thought the system could safeguard or protect from that so we can keep... Because so many people have been victims of sexual assault, they're going to end up on juries. Mm -hmm. So how to keep results safe from that? Mm. 
great question. Thank you. Um, so for a little bit of context, um, there was a juror um, on the Maxwell jury who I spoke to um, after the verdict had come down, uh, and he, he, he said, I'd like to do an interview. Uh, and when we got on FaceTime, he said that he had um, helped other members of the jury uh, in the jury room understand how traumatic memories work. And he was able to do that because he himself was a victim of sexual abuse. Um, and when this story was published, um, the Maxwell defence team uh, immediately said, you know, we, we shouldn't have this sexual abuse victim on a jury, um, and this is, quote, incontrovertible grounds for a new trial. So this throws up a lot of uh, really important issues, and, and as you said, you know, we cannot keep sexual abuse survivors off juries, um, either practically or ethically. Uh, so the fact that, you know, the defence were immediately saying, you know, this jury wasn't a fair jury because we had an abuse victim on it um, is really, 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 really problematic. And what was shocking to me was not that the defence said that, because by this point, you know, I, I had seen them at work every day for weeks and I'm not surprised um, that, you know, and they did, they, they really blamed this juror. They were really vicious about him. Um, said that, you know, he deliberately lied in order to take down Ghislaine Maxwell. And, um, you know, that didn't surprise me. What did surprise me was how many people out in the world seem to agree with that proposition, uh, that people, that abuse victims shouldn't be on juries because they have this kind of incurable bias. Uh, and it was really quite shocking to me how many people believe that. Um, and so I think there are a couple of things that need to be done so uh, I then started speaking to experts and I spoke to an academic who's dedicated his entire career to studying jury decision-making in rape trials. And he has done this study again and again and again uh, and he has said um, there is no evidence that someone who has been sexually victimised themselves would go one way or the other when it comes to convicting or acquitting uh, a defendant in a, in a trial that involves sexual violence. If anything, he had one study where 100% of abuse victims voted to acquit um, a perpetrator of sexual violence. So the idea that there is an, you know, there is an inherent connection between being an abuse victim and only being able, you know, being desperate to convict all perpetrators uh, is not true. Um, there's no evidence for it. So again, it's one of these things that we need to look at really closely. And if we are you know, shaming a, an abuse victim for being on a jury. Um, you know, we're just in exactly the same pattern. You know, this is why I was so shocked by the amount of victim blaming that was coming out about someone who had spoken about their own experience of abuse. So I think we need that that research to be kind of much more widely disseminated. And much, you know, we need people to understand that scientifically there is no connection between being sexually victimised and having this. Um, what they call in the law incurable bias and therefore not being able to sit on a jury. And also um, we need to change... So in the US, um, people screen jurors for personal experiences that are similar to what's being discussed in the trial. Um, and it's, and they try... Defence lawyers will always try and exclude jurors who've, who've had an experience of sexual abuse. So firstly, we need to kind of question... Uh, whether that should be happening at all. And if it is happening, we need to really reform the way that we screen, that, that we ask jurors about a history of, of abuse because the way it's done at the moment um, 
is is improper and um, it's indelicate and it's insensitive. Uh, and that was exactly this juror's experience um, on this jury. And uh, as you say, the idea that having one abuse victim on a jury of 12 people who made a unanimous decision, the fact that, you know, you could suggest that that would be grounds to overturn a verdict is completely impractical as well as being unethical because what they ask, what defence lawyers ask is, have you or anyone you know been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed? So if you think about how many people would have to answer yes to that question, you know, anyone you know, um, you know, you, you couldn't find 12 jurors um, uh, who could say no to that question and then you could never have any trials. So that's a real problem. Uh, and we really need to, you know, it's just another example of, you know, the law and the justice system, and I think us as a society, just haven't thought properly about this yet. And the Maxwell trial is the perfect example of this. You know, it's turned into this saga um, where everyone's arguing that, that sexual abuse victims shouldn't be on, on juries, and the fact that we haven't had that conversation yet is a real problem, I think, and I think we need to have that. So thank you for that question. Alira, will you allow us one more question? No? Uh, I'm sorry, this is out of my hands, folks. Um, I, I blame the stage manager. Um, but thank you. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for queuing. Um, I, I would encourage you to actually come and meet Lucia right afterward, um, where you know we ask you to support authors by purchasing the books at the book tent. I believe it's that way. Um, and... Lucia will be there as well, I, I hope. Lucia, I, will, I don't I know what your there. plans are. <laughs> okay, great. And thank you all so much. Those were some remarkably thoughtful questions. Thank you for coming out so early and uh, for celebrating Women's Day with us with a really thoughtful yeah. conversation. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all so much for coming. Um,